Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in the order of publication. And in this episode, I'll be looking at Philip K. Dick's 1960 novel, Dr. Futurity. In fact, this is my fourth episode on Dr. Futurity, and I'll be this will be my final one as well. So I'll be finishing up kind of my play-by-play look at the final four chapters and then coming to some overall review of of this novel and some some kind of thematic summary so i urge you to go back and listen to the previous three episodes where i cover kind of what's happened up to this point but but i'll just give you a brief summary if you're just joining us the novel it's it's set initially at the turn of the 21st century and our main character is is a doctor named jim parsons and he is sent forward in time about 500 years and the world he encounters in the future is Uh, as you might expect, very odd. It's racially amalgamated. And the main difference, though, it's also ethnically and linguistically amalgamated. But the main difference is that this is a culture that doesn't respect life. So the irony, of course, is that the doctor who, after he goes forward in time, he takes it all in stride, realizing, thinking, I mean, that everyone will need a doctor, right? But he learns quickly that this is the one, this culture doesn't need doctors because people who are injured, even slightly, are just put to death and euthanized. The, tr- the world is broken up into tribes, and he learns that these tribes determine, they go into, they have fights and conflicts, and they determine who will pass on their gametes into the soul cube from which all new life is created. So reproduction and sex are completely divided. It's very much like what you see in Brave New World, which had the same idea. So, yeah, Dick, I think, is pretty much lifting lifting that from from Huxley. But it, it's played with a little bit differently here, especially connecting it to this world in which life doesn't really matter because all, all that really matters is passing on your gametes. So it's a very much an ex- epitome of social Darwinian logic. He's told all this by a man named Al Stenick, who wants to punish him after he he attempts to save the life of a girl who's just moderately injured. Um, for this, he is he's punished with exile, but first El, this man, El Stenak, shows him around and tells him how the, the world works. While being sent off to Mars to exile, he is saved by a group of, of insurgents called the Wolf Tribe or the Wolf Lodge, and these are people who believe, to be, believe they're descended from the Iroquois, and they affiliate themselves with Native Americans, and they blame the what's happened to the world on white supremacy in the 500 years, what they call the, the horrible 500 years of European domination since the Spanish conquest. Now, one of their elders, a man named Corneth, tried to go back in time to stop Sir Francis Drake's explorations of, of California, trying to kill him with an advanced technology, hoping this would scare off future European exploration. But he actually was killed during this expedition. And Dr. Parsons is brought into the future specifically to save this man's life. He attempts to do it, but and he succeeds in saving his life in a surgery. But 
moments later he comes back to see him and, and to see him and then again he has a arrow through his chest so once again he's been killed to try to figure out why this happens they realize that their enemies have time travels so Parsons wants to go back in time especially because he realizes by looking at a picture of Sir Francis Drake that he looks a lot like Al Stenog so he decides to go back in time on an expedition to the moment when Sir Francis Drake lands in California and so he goes back there and when he's there he realizes that in fact yes Sir Francis Drake is none other than the time traveler Al Stenog and so that's a lot of plot but if you need more details and more a little more look at the themes that Dick explores up to this point please uh, go listen to my previous um, three episodes and I'm just gonna kind of finish up the plot because basically it's it's all based on a plot twist thematically I think there's not much more to say at this point but uh, but uh, it is important to kind of cl- clean up the loose ends of what happens in the plot and, and explain everything but then I'll go into a deeper look at the the major themes of this work and then also give my overall point of view of why this book shouldn't be so commonly disregarded by by Philip K. Dick fans. So where I left off last time is Parsons sees, he's back in time, back in the 16th century. He sees Sir Francis Drake and identifies him as Stenach. He reveals himself and Stenach understands who he is, um, which shows you that whenever Stenach went back in time, it was after he had already met Parsons. Um, so Drake, Stenach, whatever name you want to use, decides to let Parsons go his own way. And then Parsons goes to try to find Corneth in order to complete his task of saving his life. And he thinks the way he has to do that is by stopping the initial wound, the initial injury that, that was inflicted on him. And then he, at this point, he begins to ponder whether all of the historical achievements of Sir Francis Drake were actually due to Stenog, or maybe the other conquistadors were also time travelers, and maybe the conquest of America was achieved so successfully because of of time travel. Parsons, all right, well, Parsons meets two women that he recognized, but he knows them from when they were much older. And these are actually two of the Wolf tribe members named Jephtha and Nixia. They're part of the, they're like the oldest women of the Wolf tribe in, in the future. But this, they're actually back in time on a previous mission to the past. Dolores, he knows, who's his lover now in the future, actually looks very much like a younger version of Jephtha. And, and the, this wolf tribe is very much interbred and, and people marry brother and sister and their gametes are all from Corneth, this kind of elder of the tribe. So there is kind of a, a similarity physically of all these people. So he does eventually, though, find Corneth at the edge of a cliff and sees that he's preparing to kill Drake, who we know is actually Al Stenach. Parson tries to alert Corneth to his danger he's facing because he thinks this is the moment in which Stenach is going to shoot Corneth and cause the wound that's going to, to kill him. And he, he wants to go and approach Corneth and give him a better plan of how to kill Drake. He basically says that this plan of yours isn't going to work. Maybe we can come up with something better. But when Corneth realizes that Parsons is in disguise and possibly a time traveler, he attacks the doctor. A fight results, a fight breaks out, and the fight results in Corneth's accidental death due to an arrow through his chest. So the plot twist here is essentially that Jim Parsons all along was the one who killed Corneth. But this still leaves the question of who killed Corneth the second time, because Parsons did 
save his life at one point, but then an arrow was returned into his body. So who killed him the second time? Parsons thinks that maybe it was a future version of himself who maybe went back in time using the same kind of time travel device, but he went back in time at some point to prevent Corneth from waking up and pointing him out, um, which is kind of a fun idea. It's a fun time travel story at this point. Now, so Jim Parsons here has a dilemma. He's certain that the wolf tribe will kill him if they find out what he's done, that he's been the one who killed Corneth. And this has been their obsession for three and a half decades at this point, was revenge for this death and try to revive him, their patriarch. You know, so he knows that he's not going to survive any any of any outcome that involves him telling the truth. Yet at the same time, locating Drake and Stenek will result him in basically being sent to the prison colonies, which he was originally saved from by the Wolf Tribe. So either dilemma, either option is is bad in his view. He has an alternative in mind, and that's to wait sixteen years until the next encounter with the Europeans in 1595. So he knows enough history to know that after Sir Francis Drake's first encounter, there's not going to be another one in this area until until 16 years. And then return with the crew to England. And then maybe he can live out his life, life in England. And again, maybe use his skills as a doctor at this point. But before he can make his decision, he's found by the Wolf Tribe, particularly he's found by... The contemporary versions of the ones contemporaries with him, the, the 25th century versions of Helmer and Loris. He explains what happened and, you know, he's brought before the, the wolf tribe and the wolf lodge. And he explains what happens. But Nixia decides to punish Parsons by leaving him behind in the past. And he is, in fact, abandoned in the past. Parsons wonders how he could have gotten it how he could have gotten access to another time ship to kill Corneth the second time so this is the question he has if he's really the one who kills Corneth the second time after saving his life why does he do that and how did he have the technology and the, the chance to do this now he's waiting and it's about a you know but before he, he's not waiting too long but Loris returns and it's just moments for him but actually it was about a month for Loris she returns to bring Parsons back under her protection. So she's changed her mind. She doesn't want to see him punished. And therefore she goes back to and, and pulls him back to the future. So the time in the past is, is, at the, is at an end. It's a nice thing about time travel stories, of course, is that you don't always have to wait because you can, you can use time travel to speed along things. So Loris brings Jim Parsons to the safe location within the Wolf Lodge. And she assures him that he's safe from retribution from her brother, Helmer, who's the most angry to find out that Corneth was killed by none other than Jim Parsons. But instead of, of resting, he seizes a time ship over Loris's resistance. He goes back in time a day and a half, which is the time that Corneth dies the second time after the initial surgery. Lacking an arrow... He finds he has to go back actually in time 35 years to when Corneth was planning his execution of Drake. He steals an arrow from Corneth at that point, returns forward 35 years back to the time after the surgery, visits Corneth, who's recovering from his own surgery. He chooses at this point not to kill Corneth, and he takes the time shift forward, finding that actually someone else completed the task of killing Corneth yet again. So it's a bit confusing, but basically it comes down to that he, he basically assumed all along that he was going to be the one who kills 
Corneth the second time, basically to shut him up to make sure. Um, but that doesn't make much sense because the cat's already out of the bag about who killed Corneth the first time. So who does it? Well, someone else does. And he realizes that it was likely Hemlar who killed Corneth the second time, even though it was Parsons who seemed to have brought the arrow that that did the deed. He decides to go forward in time a little bit more in the time ship and meets his children by Loris, who are now men, a man and woman of the wolf tribe, each around 18 years old. And they direct him to meet them at some point in the future again. So there's a lot of time travel going on. This is chapter 16, if you want to read it. it it's a bit confusing, but basically it involves him first realizing that he's not the one who killed Corneth the second time, so he's not guilty of that. And then he decides to go ahead and see his children who he had with, with Loris. And in a way, Dr. Parsons contributes something very important at this point to the wolf tribe, which is uh, a new set of DNA, right? Because they've been so inbred and they've been kind of intermarrying. And that's why they all look alike and they're all kind of descended from the same people. He's brought in kind of a new batch of DNA. And, and a point brought up earlier in the novel, which was that he was not sterilized, which made him actually a very dangerous person. Because everyone else in the in the world has been sterilized because sex and reproduction have been separated. But he didn't have that, and he had sex with Laura. So he did father a couple of children. And he meets them, and they said, you know, Dad, we'll, we'll see you some point in the future. So this brings us to the final chapter of the novel. Jim Parsons learns that his children are named Grace and Nathan. When Loris found out she was pregnant, she decided to save Parsons from exile in the past. And that's why she went back in time after a month to grab him and try to protect him. But at some point in the future, Parsons, uh, now at some point in the future, Parsons meets Loris and Loris is now an old woman. The Wolf Lodge has stopped making these efforts going back in time to kill Drake. But Stenag, in fact, stayed on in the past as Drake for 10 years to ensure the timeline and ensure continuity. The Wolf Lodge has also decided to stop tampering with the past, but instead have taken on the symbol of the Caduceus, the, the kind of the symbol of the doctors, right? Those two snakes. And they attempt to, instead of trying to change the past, to actually try to improve the future. And the way they try to do this is by preserving the knowledge of, of being a physician, basically restore this profession, restore this craft um, of, of valuing life over death. In addition to reviving the profession of the physician, they're pushing for an end to the forced euthanators and the revival of, of, of natural childbirth. So they're basically trying to bring back some of the best elements of, of the old world that were abolished by this, this new culture that emerged. Loris is now the, the mother superior of the soul cube, and she has herself saved many men from sterilization. By dying, Corneth has assured the legacy of Parsons will continue in the wolf tribe rather than being the sole source of gametes for, for the tribe. Parsons, at this point, decides to return to his wife in his own time. He is then, therefore, then they use the same time travel device to return him to the road on San Francisco where he originally had the accident. Parsons hitches a ride with someone who comments about his strange clothing. And this is kind of humorous because when he was first brought to the future, the first thing he did was hitchhike and the man that he meets immediately comments on his strange clothing and calls him sick and because he had pale skin no one had that white skin anymore so he thought he was sick and commented on his strange clothing so the same thing happens to him now and the 
kind of the novel sort of basically ends as it begins. So from the perspective of people in the turn of the 21st century, Parsons was just in a car accident, but from his point of view, he had this, this long adventure involving time travel and the future and all that. So that's the novel. It's, it's a nice uh, condensed story. There's not any real questions at the end. It, it is what it is. Um, but thematically, I think it's quite rich. So that's what I want to talk about next. And I, I think that where we need to start is really this question of, I guess, of youth, of age, and stagnation, right? So the culture that's most stagnated is the mainstream society we have. But it's, it's a completely youthful society where people don't really age. Most people die before 30 years of age. But nothing changes. And the culture that seems to have an idea of being able to adapt to the future has old people. So is Dick criticizing youth here and saying, no, really, we kind of need the wisdom of the elders and we need to not assume that people are useless once they they have the first kind of crick in the neck. Well, we have a very hyper social Darwinian world of Dr. Futurity. There's really no need for humans to age beyond their reproductive years. So the ideology of the society then glorifies death. Once you pass on your gametes, if you prove yourself worthy, then your job's done at that point. You don't really, you're just kind of wasting space after that point. And this is kind of this brutal Darwinian logic. I don't even know if Dick talks about it directly in terms of, of social Darwinism, but it's certainly the subtext. So those who achieve victory in their short life, you know, have the promise of their genes being passed on in this giant eugenics project. Despite the promise of rapid social change due to the survival of the fittest, and that's how it's justified, this whole system is justified in the fact that each generation is better than the past, society seems largely stagnant. In many ways, the future described in this novel is more akin to uh, geronitocracy, a kind of a the rule of the elders. But in, in fact, we have no elders here, but what we have is kind of the enduring legacy of the past. It's stuck in a single path, there's no new ideas and everything gravitates to this. This is the system that's going to be sustained forever, it seems. War has literally been declared on the youth here in the sense that they, they die by the millions, right? People die before they're 30. So the, the youth are just there to pass on their reproductive material. They're, the only thing that's valued about them is that, is their, the slight possibility that they'll be chosen to be the next generation. All, they have no other use, right? They're not really that creative, essentially. At least not in, this, in a social sense. They, they do have music. So Dick maybe is pointing out here that this mad dash for progress ends up with stagnation or eugenics and the social Darwinian logic is actually not progressive at all, but actually quite, it, it leads to stagnation. So I think that's how I want to understand it. It's... It's also very, the world that we have here is, is got some Malthusian logic in it. And that is, especially in how they want to control population. The idea is you can't have too many people because that's going to cause social unrest, right? We need to kind of maintain the steady population. If we can't have population growing too fast, not, you know, because that, that causes all these problems. This is, this goes back to Malthus who thought this, right? He was looking at population trends in the early 19th century and saying, well, if population keeps growing like this, we're going to run out of food. Right. And we still hear this kind of Malthusian logic, like there's too many people on the planet. Right. The climate, weather, but now it might be 
not about food supply. Obviously, we have more than enough food to feed the world. We waste more food than than we would need to feed all the hungry people. But it's maybe framed in terms of climate change or ecology or resource use or, or garbage and waste and things like that. But so Mal the Malthusian logic is still with us. And there's a bit of this here, especially in the way that everything is controlled. The, the whole population's numbers are, are controlled by a central bureaucracy. I'm, I'm sure there are people who think that would be a great thing, actually. Dick doesn't. Dick is very anti-Malthusian, not just in this work, but especially in Crack in Space and the pre-persons and other, and other works. Uh, now, what about this conquest of the new world? So the resistance to the death cult in Dr. Futurity comes from people who maybe aren't Native Americans, but they see their ancestry tied to Native Americans. They, they've, what they've inherited from this, their, their identification with Native American culture. And it, Dick seems to suggest here that they're not really Indians. Um, at least that's what Parson thinks. But it doesn't really matter because they associate, they blame Western civilization for this obsessive focus on progress. And that's kind of the original sin of, of this world. And I think here, you know, it's it's associated with the frontier, of course. We're talking about the conquest and of the Americas, which was, of course, a frontier experience. And I think here Dick is showing a little bit of ambivalence and maybe the first sense of his ambivalence about the frontier. Now, this was written in 1953. So at the time, he's still writing a lot of works that have this kind of glorification of the frontier and presenting it, his efforts to present it as a place of, of social creativity, of experimentation, of, of a way to get out of kind of stagnation. Other works from this early batch, like The World Jones Made and The Man Who Japed, Solar Lottery, have a much more optimistic view of the frontier. This one doesn't, not as much. I'll come back to the frontier in a bit. But Now their solution, the solution of these people who, who associate with the Indians and, and hate Western civilization, and blame Western civilization for the decline of their of the world they live in, is to go back and murder the early conquistadors. Now, this is very ahistorical. It's very naive. It's the kind of this idea that if you can just kill one person, you would you could stop it. Well, there's several examples of explorers and conquistadors and who were who were killed in their efforts. Captain Cook was killed in the Philippines. Magellan was killed in, or maybe he was killed in Hawaii. No, Captain Cook was killed, I think, in Hawaii. Magellan was killed in the Philippines. So, you know, this didn't stop the conquest of the West. So I think there's a bit of naivety in this idea that if you stop Sir Francis Drake, this will close the door on European conquest. And I think Dick realizes this too, because he shows it as a very futile quest. And what they really need to do is actually revive the traditions that are valuable. The, the, instead, the way you stop the death cult is you, re, you revive an interest in life and in saving life and natural birth. And you, you confront the Malthusian logic straight up. You don't try to go back in time and fix some little thing and hope, you know, the dominoes will, will turn out differently. N you know, never the, in any case, though, what we see here is Dick having a very clear interest in the critique of Western civilization and a critique in the theme of, of the white conquest of America in, in genocide. And 
suppressed alternatives in history. I think that's the key here, that there are alternative visions, you know, worldviews that have been suppressed by the dominance of Western civilization. And say what you want about the West, but one result of the Western conquest has been the abol abolition of alternatives in, in all continents across the world through through the colonial process. A lot of the homogeneity, homo homogeneity we see in the world today is a result of the logic of of Europe dominating so much, even in, you know, even in China, right, which is in some ways trying to present an alternative to the Western liberal model, you know, still its institutions, its founding ideology are very Western. Well, another theme we can talk about here, let's just jump to the frontier. As with his other early novel, The Man Who Japed, we have an idea here of the frontier as a space which people who can't fit in are sent to. It's now in this novel he never goes there. It's, he's just said you have to go off to Mars or some maybe it was a moon of Jupiter. Right? I think maybe it was a moon of Jupiter. You have to go there because that's where the weirdos live, the deviants. In Man Who Jape, he actually goes there. The character, actually Purcell, his name is, actually gets to go there. And you can listen to my review of the Man Who Japed, which is on this podcast as well. You know, there he actually visits it and sees how people live there. And we get a fuller description of what that deviant world looks like. Here, I guess you have the wolf tribe as kind of an example of that. But the frontier then is a space for deviants who can't conform to the social order. But in creating such a space, the dominant social order provides a means of resistance. And that's true in both of these, these novels. And then one last theme I think is important in this novel is the middle class life and professionalism. Jim Parsons begins the novel as a typical middle class professional living in suburbs. The world he was born into is already showing signs of the later stagnation that he will experience in full force in the future. Parsons does not know this, but his profession as a physician is already obsolete when the novel begins. Only by going to the future does he see the end result of his civilization. In the future, the physician is replaced with the professional euthanizer. Dick makes the difference between these two jobs similar in first glance, or makes the two jobs similar at first glance, only different in their end results. They're, they're both professional. It's not that the professional physician doesn't really exist in the future. It's that is, he's just there to pass people on to, to the afterlife. It's only in the context of the resistance that he's exposed to in the wolf tribe where the difference between life and death is is made clear. So I, you know, I, I think it's kind of interesting that Parsons is a professional. And at the end, what you have when the wolf tribe kind of recreates physicians is something a little bit more craft based. And they had to develop this the hard way. They didn't learn it in school. They had to learn through experiment. And it's basically the whole medical profession have to be, had to be rebuilt by, by scratch by people who we're really invested in in saving lives. And, you know, it's as much as good as Parson is, as much he does believe in life, the realization we have to have is that in a few generations after Parson dies, you know, the transition from doctor to euthanizer, we don't know how it happened, but it it's it seems to be a gradual change. Um, and so to, to get back to a life-based culture requires, in a sense, moving a little bit away from professionalization and kind of the world of Parsons. And that's one reason Parsons really can't fit 
into this reimagined future. Okay, so those are the main themes. It's it's not as it's not as rich as some of Dick's novels, obviously, but I think it has some important ideas in there. And I kind of wish it was more fully developed and you know a little bit more clear and consistent of what he was trying to say in terms of what he was trying to say. But what I I don't you know I'm not the person who's going to rank these works. You're not going to get a top ten list out of me, you know, unless you really beg for one. So I, I'm not really one to try to rank these, or I tried it once actually to rank Dick's novels, uh, in my view, and you know I wasn't that successful. It was I found it very difficult and challenging because I think they all have something to say. But you know I what I don't want to say is that Doctor Futurity is his worst novel or one of his worst novels. So someone once told me that Doctor Futurity is. His worst novel, except for Vulcan's Hammer, which is the novel we're going to be looking at next. And yeah, both of these novels aren't his greatest, but I think they're both a little bit underappreciated. And in a, in a way, unlike some of the works, like take a work like Valis or Divine Invasion, works that are a little bit more popular. You know, they are not works that that speaks so much to our contemporary actual challenges in a way, like some of the big questions we're facing, like population or the surveillance state or, you know, professionalization or education or how we deal with, with a crowded economy or how we deal with young people, the, you know, that don't have millennials, that don't have the same opportunities that older generations have. These are real political problems that we're facing. And these are works that deal with some of these questions. Vulcan's Hammer is all about the surveillance state. And it's if it has any relevance to us, it's because of that. And there are other works of Dick's that are more popular, like even The Man in High Castle, which we'll be looking at shortly. It I'm not sure its political um, role, role in our life. So to the degree we want to contextualize these works, both in the time Dick wrote them and in Dick's own themes and ideas, but also read them as people who are trying to get something out of these works. I think some of these are, are a little bit more powerful than actually works like The Man in the High Castle. So in that sense, I think they're underappreciated. And the question then becomes, am I then looking at literature as propaganda or am I looking at literature as art? And ironically, I'm reading... W.E.B. Du Bois at the, at the same time I'm, I'm recording this for my, my mainline series, American Writers. And Du Bois talked about the Harlem Renaissance writers in the same terms and saying, you know, we sh should, art should be pro uh, propaganda essentially and art, like literature should not just be art. It, it's, it can't just be about the truth. It has to, to, or if it is about truth, it has to be a truth as propaganda. Um, now, anyways, I, I can't avoid looking at the underlying politics of the novel and that maybe lets me get beyond some of the bad writing or the kind of the laughable plotting that we certainly have in this novel. It's, there's a lot of ridiculous stuff in this story, of course, and a lot of convenience and everything kind of was wrapped up a little bit too easily. Nevertheless, so I, I think to, if you read these thematically, you got to, you know, these are powerful questions we're facing. Especially, I think, on population and, and kind of the relationship between the system and young people.
or how we deal with the legacy of European conquest. Uh, Dick doesn't explore that really anywhere else as far as I know. But I'll just quote one part of the novel for you that I think sums up why this is kind of important for us. One, one of the major members of the resistance, the wolf tribe, points out the danger of social stagnation and the relationship of social stagnation with the cult of death. And this is something Dick maybe even explored in his first short story, uh, Stability. Quote, we've made our point, but we've achieved a calcified society that spends its time meditating about death. It has no plans, no direction, no desire for growth. Our nagging sense of inferiority has betrayed us. It's made us expend our energies in recovering our pride, improving our natural ancient enemies false. Like the Egyptian society, death and life so interwoven that the world has become a cemetery and that people nothing more than custodians living among the bones of the dead. So, you know, it, it goes straight, this quote goes straight to the heart of Dick's politics. And I think it's really relevant to us in this era of late capitalism in which, I don't, you know, I don't know if we want to go as far as to say we're in the death cult, but we're certainly not ecological. We're certainly not thinking about ecology and we're not nearly enough. And we're not addressing the crisis we're in with any degree of, of seriousness or not the seriousness we need. So, you know, in some ways, you know, a couple hundred years from now, people may look back at our world and say that we were kind of obsessed with the future, obsessed with the new technologies, except obsessed with kind of um, the, the newest fashion or the newest gadget. Right. And certainly clothes like fashion for clothing is revived every every couple times a year. Right. The, the newest trends in music the same way. But in all of that, we haven't really sanctified life in the way we need to if we want to survive as, as a species. So in this sense, I think Dr. Futurity has a lot to say to us. And yeah, maybe Dick could have said a lot of the things a little better. And maybe he says it better in some of his other works. I don't know. I'll, I'll think about that. But, you know, I think this work is, is has, has things to tell us. And if you can get beyond the kind of clunky plotting and the contrived nature of much of the story, I, I think there are good things in here. That, that's, I guess, my overall review. So that will do it for my my review of Dr. Futurity. Uh, if you have your own comments about this novel or its themes, please uh, leave them below or write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. My next series will be on Vulcan's Hammer. This is a novel about resistance to the surveillance state. Um, I don't know how long I'll spend on it. Maybe three, maybe four episodes. Um, I'm not sure. I, I will... I'll decide as I as I get into it, but um, that that's that's what's coming up next. So again, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time with Vulcan's Hammer. My tired thoughts that leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving dies.